0: Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast.
1: What a show on Hal Anderson Afternoons with guest host Cameron Poitras. Lots to get to on the podcast. Tina Chen, a board member for the Winnipeg Chinese Cultural and Community Center. She was on the show to talk about how COVID-19 has affected Chinatown as well as the Chinese community in Winnipeg as a whole. How were dogs bred? We were joined by Mark Durer, dog scholar, journalist, and author of several books, including How the Dog Became the Dog, From Wolves to Our Best Friends, chronicling the history of how dogs have been bred throughout the centuries conservative leadership hopeful Marilyn Gladue, an MP for Sarnia Lampton. Uh, she hopped on the program to talk about her ideas heading into the conservative leadership race, which is really starting to heat up. And Chris Jackson, vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs, talks Super Tuesday in the United States. What will happen to Bernie Biden or what will also happen to Bloomberg's millions? Will they be well spent? We'll find that out all on the podcast. And now the podcast. Chinatowns across Canada are struggling with the fears of the COVID-19 coronavirus. Uh, in Calgary, sales in some of the shops and restaurants have dropped by 70 to 80 percent. And when I lived in Calgary, my walk to work actually went right through Chinatown, and I would stop to eat there, I I, I would say, very often, but I think that would even be a little bit of an understatement. Uh, uh, Chinatown businesses in Vancouver, Edmonton, and Toronto have all reported a decline in customers. Um in, in here in Winnipeg, despite no cases of the coronavirus yet, I w- we we wanted to know: Are things similar here? And I'm joined by Tina Chen. Uh, she's the uh, a member on the board of directors for the uh, uh, Winnipeg Chinese Cultural and Community Center. She's here in studio. Hello, Tina. How are you? Hi. How are you
2: doing today? Thanks so much for having me.
1: No, it's 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 great uh, great to have you on, and I, and I'm I'm really happy we can have this conversation face to face as always. Um, Tina, is is Chinatown getting hit hard right now?
2: Um, certainly we're hearing from the business um, leaders in the community that they are feeling the effects of a coronavirus and people's fears of just being out in public space. So I haven't been able to speak to all the business owners, but those I ha- have spoken to report about a 30 to 35 percent drop in business. Okay. So something that's quite significant, given that this is also usually a lower, you know, business volume at mm. this time of year anyway. And so it really has a disproportionate effect on their livelihood.
1: Well, 30 to 35 percent, that's people, that's take home pay.
2: Yes. <laughs> well,
1: that's- very significant to to, to, to I mean uh, so these fears are obviously they're 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 here in Winnipeg as well they, would you say they're unfounded.
2: Well, I think so, and it's really hard to kind of put this in a context. We know the Chinese community really sort of took the initiative early on mm-hmm. when the coronavirus broke out. They began fundraising efforts in a, you know, astounding two-week period. They raised $47,000 and sent off medical supplies to China directly to the mm-hmm. hospital in Wuhan in ability to show this, and they only brought it to an end when there really were no medical supplies to buy and send. Yes. Um, and so we know there's certainly support within the community and for the community, but it seems that people are extremely cautious about going, Onto public space, they've identified certain areas that you know probably without really a rational basis, but more of an emotional basis, they identify as high risk, and you know unfortunately this really impacts those in our community and their ability to sort of you know run their businesses, their livelihood, and really to support their working and their staff.
1: Well, yeah, of course, and I mean uh, Chinatown, you're talking about it. it's 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 kind of a slow time right now, and so this is this is really hitting hard.
2: It definitely is. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think we'd like to see, and I think probably across the country, but probably for all businesses, you know, whether or not they're identified as being in Chinese in Chinatown or run mm-hmm. by Chinese business owners, is really that people continue to, you know, assess the situation and think about the importance of really being in community rather than isolating yourself. And yeah. that, you know, the risk, as we're told in Manitoba, is very, very low. And it seems to me, at least those that I know, whether they've been traveling from China or other parts of the world that, you know, are now at higher risk, Italy. Iran, um, South Korea, that they are monitoring themselves. And I think we, you know, have to really think about, you know, just being out in public. And that in itself is a statement that kind of tells Mm -hmm. us that we support other people.
1: Yeah. I mean, how many people work and live in Chinatown here in Winnipeg?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I don't really have.
1: That's why I I wanted (laughs) you to answer it.
2: I thought no one prepared me for that question. (laughs) I'm sorry sorry to put you on the spot. So I think, you know, we see a handful of core restaurants in the area. There's the kind of the number of people living in the um, director of Channel Town proper isn't that large. Mm -hmm. But again, we have people who are living in the newer communities there. And that's actually an incredibly diverse community. It's a community of newer immigrants um, with low income housing. It's, of course, you know, the building up of the North Exchange District. And so, you know, I think they're moving through there. One of the... Things that I would say though is, you know, when I go to Chinatown, I can feel that it's emptier. Mm-hmm. And you can begin to feel that. And I think. How does that make you feel? Well, it's a bit of a morale thing. And yeah. I have to say, one day I went for dim sum and. I sat in the restaurant, and it was very empty compared to usual, and I actually just assumed, my first assumption was, oh, there must be a party coming this afternoon, so they're sort of preparing, and some of the space is reserved. And then I looked around, and I thought to myself, oh, no, it's not, you know, there's, they're not preparing for a gathering. It's mm. actually because less people are here. And it does make you to begin to feel, I think, a little bit isolated, and it begins to raise concerns yourself. Uh, People, you know, even the group I was with, some start saying, should we be out in public? Maybe we want to get home Mm -hmm. quickly. And of course, we all said, that seems, you know, not like a good solution, but I think it does raise the anxiety level and I think there's, you know, it really begins to feel like the community itself needs to pull together more mm-hmm. strongly and I think that's the response that we we're hoping for.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and It, it definitely is a, is a morale thing and um, I, I think it's, if people are avoiding maybe going for dim sum or or, or going down to that area and their fears of the coronavirus, I, I, I'd say that's a little disappointing to me. You know, uh, just from, you know, my personal uh, approach to this, we, we have no cases here uh, in, in in Winnipeg and you, we well know where the where the virus is spread but uh, you know this this is a long way away from China
2: it certainly is and of yeah. course you know we have people in the community who at different points who either have family in China or who yeah. have traveled there but I think like Lois to many points in the world and you know I I, every, I would even say every, every corner, corner yes. of the world. You and know? I, you know, I wonder if what we will begin to see is whether there'll be a lessening of the anxiety, a sense of as it spreads mm. more broadly, it's hard to pinpoint, yeah. you know, places that you might selectively avoid or whether the anxiety is just going to get so great that people really will be have a fear of going out. And, you know, I hope that isn't the response. I hope that people, you know, continue to monitor and think about sort of what does it, you know, what are the chances of catching it? What are our risk levels and the importance of, you know... Of supporting the businesses, the community, thinking about people's livelihood, but I think it's really important that people just kind of connect during yeah. times like this. I
1: I, I I totally 100% agree with you. I think that's that's the best way to 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 approach this because I feel like on one side we have the people saying you know you know batten down the hatches, board up the windows, you know start stockpiling food, get your canned goods and toilet paper and bottled water and all this other stuff, and then we you have the you have that one one side, and then on the other side you have oh there's no problem. Problem, there's no issue just go about your day I, I i think we're probably closer to that way right now here at least in winnipeg than we are to you know you know you know, start. You know, make it, Make sure you got a you know bottled water, and you, you have a, some some sort of device that you can use to like uh, heat. Uh, I don't know soup or something in your house. Like, uh, we're, we're 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 not at we're not in panic yet. There's no reason
2: to be panicking. No, I don't think people are in panic, and so it's kind of interesting. I think you're right that there is a little bit of complacency. I think yeah. we feel a bit of distance here. You know, and even when we talk about cases in Canada, people assume they're going to hit Vancouver and Toronto. They're going to hit other cities. Yes, we feel like we've got some isolated mode and perhaps we shouldn't be quite so complacent, but we have to really think about that informed, Mm -hmm. you know, informed awareness of what's happening and avoid the kind of hysteria, but also think about how our actions might also show support of others. And, you know, in Winnipeg here, it's not just the Chinatown area, but often the South Winnipeg area that's being affected um, where there's a lot of Chinese businesses and restaurants. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, you know, significant part of the city and, and, you know, just allowing us to kind of have those kinds of connections. You know, I know for many, though, as I talk to, you know, friends and colleagues at different points of the world, um, some of the fears really aren't about themselves catching um, coronavirus and it's spreading immediately, but it's a little bit about being caught up in med- med- medical bureaucracies yeah. and the fear that you will come down with a cold that would normally not flag anything and that your life will be disrupted by quarantine or other types of, you know, activities that you'll be asked to sort of isolate and so you're kind of, you can't do your usual activities and I think that probably is the greater fear. What happens if you begin to show symptoms that aren't linked to coronavirus but others begin to wonder if they are and it affects you know your lifestyle, well, and so.
1: Well, I mean, I mean, uh, and and I know that this is going on. If somebody's sick in an office anywhere, and they start coughing, everybody, you know, half of course jokingly and half jokingly, and all that kind of stuff, people want to go, oh, I don't know, he's got the coronavirus, so you know, stay away
2: from him, right? Is, is, is that is that helpful? Uh, I don't think it's very helpful, although, you know, I hear it all the time. <laughs> well, and of course, Sometimes, yeah. you know, we say that, and I have to say, you know, it feels, you know, we are in cold and flu season, and so yes. there's so many strains and varieties going around. And so there is kind of a sense that we do need to be more aware of kind of, you know, just our public mm-hmm. health practices. But, again, I think we have to really trust, you know, that we have... a a strong infrastructure in Winnipeg in Canada, whether it's around public health, you know, inspections of restaurants, all of these things. And that, you know, we don't want to kind of jump to conclusions that they're at a higher risk than what would just be encountered in our everyday exactly. life. And for me, you know, one of the real markers is, you know, by doing certain things, it's not going to increase my risk from what I would do normally in my day. Mm-hmm. And if I can't answer positively yes, then I think, then I shouldn't really change what I'm doing. And I think that's usually a kind of good um, earmark place to go rather than panicking. And- that's cool.
1: But of course, and and you know, I, I I heard this somebody when I was I was going to a conference in Toronto one time, and uh, and I forget his name, but it was a it was a it was a Chinese man, of course, Chinese Canadian, and he was telling me that the in in Toronto, the population of Winnipeg, seven hundred and fifty thousand or so people, that's the population of the of the Chinese Canadian that's uh, of the Chinese Canadian Canadian community in Toronto, right? And it's it's not you know blow everything up, figure everything. It's just let's just move forward and figure this out. Like it's it's not time to panic. Like... <laughs>
2: No, and I think you know, and so many people are just very, very aware. And I think yeah. you know they're concerned about the health of their families, you know, their children, their you know relatives, other places. So for the most part, those who have ties to high risk areas, mm-hmm. I think, are being incredibly vigilant. Yes, and they're really concerned about what's happening and following and getting information. And so you know, I I like to think that we can continue to exist in this moment of trust where we understand them, and and I think also to not only support sort of businesses and communities, but then you know think about how perhaps. Perhaps those who are less advantaged are might be disproportionately affected as well, and so to think about how we might make sure that we're supporting those communities, those who always live in congested areas.
1: Nobody wants to spread this. No, nobody wants to be the person to spread this around. That's just that's 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 the end of it. There, uh, Tina Chen is a member on the board of directors for the Chinese uh, Winnipeg Chinese Cultural and Community Center. And thanks so much for coming
2: in studio. Thank you for having me.
1: Now I'm really excited about this conversation, and I'm glad we were able to connect. Um, I reached out to uh, Mark Dur, uh, dog scholar, journalist, and author of several books, including "How the Dog Became the Dog: From Wolves to Our Best Friends." And this this is all following up um, on the uh, serious attack by those. Uh, you know, we're not sure what breed those dogs were, but they happened over the over the course of the weekend um, out there on 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 Pemina Highway at that at that hotel. And it followed up with lots of conversations about breeds of dog, right? And 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 we heard from uh, we heard from from several experts over the course of yesterday and today, talking about how every dog can be trained, but it's but certain breeds are not ideal. Uh, for inexperienced dog trainers. And that's kind of where the conversation got went. And I and I wanted to get into the history of of you know how dogs have been bred and and changed by human beings. And that's why I wanted to bring in uh, uh Mark. Uh Mark, hey thanks for, for coming on the show. I, I'm I'm really happy we, we could connect. Well I'm glad we
3: could connect too. Yeah. I'm glad to be here um Nice sunny afternoon in, in Miami.
1: Yes. Now, now don't, uh, you know, we're up here in, in Winnipeg, Canada. I mean, it, it's actually not been too bad. It's only minus five. We can take that. And that's that's in Celsius, not Fahrenheit, just just so you don't, uh, you're not that worried. <laughs>
3: um, uh, I, I should add that Miami-Dade County was the first uh, in the country, in the U.S., to uh, outlaw uh, pit, so-called pit bulls.
1: Yeah. Uh, that that
3: ban has been uh, allowed to lapse now. Mm.
1: Well, but, I, I uh, go ahead. Oh, the, oh, I'm saying that that ban actually still in place here in in Winnipeg. And for I think for three dog breeds, just to give you some context.
3: All right. Which which three were they?
1: Oh, uh pitbull breeds. Uh, there's also uh, the terrier, but it's like a, of, of the Pitbull sort of family of dogs. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah, well, that's so, one of the problems with identifying them as a, as a purebred dog.
1: Yeah, so so so, Mark, I, I wanted to start from the beginning. I mean, you wrote the book, "How the Dog Became the Dog: From Wolves to Our Best Friend." Let's let's start from the beginning. I mean, we got to go way way back, thousands of years. How did the relationship start?
3: Well, no one knows for sure. Uh, we can we can make some can th- make some guesses based on what we know about the way that uh, hunting and gathering people... Live today as they might have lived in the Pleistocene, but we're talking about trying to think of how people lived uh, 15 or 16,000 or more years ago, uh, and and that's impossible to do really. In a way, uh, it was during that the last glacial advance when global warming was a distant dream, if a dream at all. And probably I, I well, I think what happened is that wherever these wolves uh, met on the trail with uh, with ancient humans, they they struck up a, an alliance of sorts. Humans we know now will follow wolves to the hunt, on the hunt, or dingoes. They'll follow dingoes, which are a type of dog. Um, and when they come to the to the game where the game is, they'll they'll step in and kill it, and possibly share the bounty with the wolf or the or the dingo who, who helped them. Uh, it's it's a kind of mutually beneficial uh, arrangement. And it's not based on any kind of dominance it's just based on uh on people having the same kind of interests as the wolf uh wolves have a similar social uh social uh setup to, to humans and if they work a wolf, a wolf pack is a basically a small family unit and and it, it it exists because of its education of the young teaching them how to hunt how to live how to be wolves in effect just as humans Try to teach uh, their their offspring how to be human. Don't really succeed in that. We're training training dogs here, but we try.
1: Yeah, so it's it's like uh, it's like uh, I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if you're an Austin Powers fan, but it's kind of like, like Doctor Evil telling Austin Powers, "You're not we're not so different, you and I."
3: That's correct. We're not so different. Uh, if we were to talk to wolves, uh, and we do talk to wolves, people do, uh, and we're not so different. Dogs were even less different than we, we learn now. Uh, in fact, the more we learn about dogs, the more we see how, how similar they are to us and less to them. How, how did
1: humans start to kind of breed out certain traits? I mean, they, they developed this relationship uh, with dogs, human beings. Uh, when did they really start to breed out certain traits to, to sort of shape dogs into kind of the tools that, that they wanted them to be?
3: Well, the dog, uh, as, a, as, a, as a separate kind of entity from wolves, might tra- go back 135,000 years. That's kind of the oldest date uh picked by genetic evidence. Uh, probably they were they came into being much more recently than that, say 35,000 or 40,000 years ago. But uh, there was very little need initially, probably, to, to select for certain traits. After a while, they people would have would have wanted to encourage breeding of their of their wolves in their midst by encouraging those who were most social uh, sociable toward people and each other to breed, and also those who were most helpful in terms of hunting and hauling uh, uh, goods around. These are the fundamental purposes, uh, uses of, of dogs, and they transfer in. Bulls
1: can do them all too. In fact, yeah. When did dogs kind of take on that sort of next step? They weren't, you know, they they, they served as as guards and they were they they helped out with hunting. When did they start to become, you know? I, and I and I don't to mean companions. to he, companions. I don't mean to insult anybody with like a a, a shits shih tzu or something like that. But the, the that thing that little dog is not helping you you out there hunting or anything like that. Right? It's it's a companion. It's 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 a little dog and uh, that runs around the house and it's a lap dog. When did that start? Well,
3: let's not confuse uh, small dogs with companion dogs. I have a Jack Russell Terrier here. And she right now is lying waiting to see a cat appear uh The cat next door has uh driven her nuts she start, I found her this afternoon trying to dig a hole <laughs> under the fence to get into the next yard um and in fact, the dogs her jack Russells are known to be uh to have a particular drive for killing things, and they are often used for purposes of clean barns for barns of rats and other things like that. So, a small dog has its uses beyond its size, uh, or that included size, and those often can involve the fundamental uh, kind of some of the fundamental activities of, of dogs. One of those is companionship. So, uh, these animals were probably always companions to humans. It's not a new; it's not a new thing. Now, if you ask why they suddenly why we started breeding dogs who were smaller or more distorted in their appearance than others. Uh, that that I suspect dates more from the beginning of agriculture, when people uh, began to to domesticate other animals as well, yeah, and learned that they could manipulate their their appearance. Remember that uh, tests have repeatedly shown that there is uh, more. More a greater difference between breed dogs of the same breed than there is between breeds of dog in terms of behavior.
1: Mm. That's that's interesting, Mark. We we don't have enough time. I wish I would have you uh, for for a little bit longer, but that we'll have to save that for next time. I will have to have the uh, have you on the the show again, but I, I really appreciate you job hopping on.
3: Okay. Well, I'm glad that we could connect.
1: Yeah, and enjoy, and enjoy the. Uh, you're from Baltimore, so I'm sh- I'm assuming the temperature's a lot nicer down there in Miami, eh? It is. I've
3: lived in Miami for twenty some years. Or so. Oh,
1: that's nice. Uh, I wish I lived in Miami. Uh, Mark Durr, uh, just just for a couple, just for you know, a couple months out of the summer, out of the winter. I mean, uh, Mark Dur is a dog scholar, journalist, and author of several books, including How the Dog Became the Dog: From Wolves to Our Best Friend. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. The conservative leadership race is, is is really starting to heat up with the first deadlines for the candidacy passing uh, just last week. Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, um as well as a host of others uh, are running and I'm joined by one of those candidates, uh, Marilyn Gladue. Uh she is on the show. Hello Marilyn, did I I pronounce your last name properly, right? It's Gladue. Yes. Glad oh. you can say it, glad oh. you can spell it. Oh, perfect, perfect. <laughs> I saw some interesting spellings of your name while I was doing a little research for this interview, uh, Marilyn, just to let you know.
4: That's okay. It was worse with uh, my previous name, Marilyn McInerney. Nobody could spell that. Don't
1: even ask. I can't do it. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> um, so you, you, you're a professional engineer. I thought that was very I interesting. Am. Where did you get your degree?
4: I went to Queens and graduated in chemical engineering and have had 35 years of global experience working as an engineer.
1: Uh, so what's, what's been your, your level of, uh, of, what's your level of expertise like what, what area I mean chemical engineer, what, where did you kind of uh, where, where did your career path well, uh, kind of point you?
4: I worked for Dow Chemical for 21 years. At one point I was in charge of over 254 plants in over 20 countries: plastics, building and construction, Dow Automotive. Environmental, medical devices. And then I was the director of engineering and construction at Suncorp at the Sarnia Refinery.
1: Oh, Suncorp. Yeah,
4: and then went on to Worley Parsons. I was a consultant there um, in uh, petrochemicals and refining for North America, mining and nuclear. So quite a broad spectrum of of, uh, global business experience before I was elected in 2015.
1: Well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you're talking a lot of uh, petro-based businesses there. I mean, these blockades and and, and the stuff surrounding them, they must have had you really fired up, eh?
4: Well, I really think that, uh, you know, we we don't have any leadership at the federal level. Justin Tudor's done nothing to, um, you know, ensure that the rule of law prevails in our country. He's allowed anarchy to rule for the last four weeks with these illegal blockades.
1: Um, uh, I read somewhere that uh, you, you would have uh, uh, used the military to deal with uh, the, the, uh, the, the protesters. Um, would, would you well, have done I that? Think,
4: I think that was not a fair quote of what I said. I said there's a natural hierarchy. It's for the police to enforce the law. And where they couldn't, that the federal government then would step in with the RCMP and if needed, the military. That is the, the natural escalation process that has been in place forever.
1: Hmm. Uh, so, uh, in in the future, if if it was deemed necessary and the blockades weren't removed, uh, and you went through that natural hierarchy, you you would use the military uh, in uh, to kind of deal with uh, people that are you know really starting to harm the economy. Is is that is that is that fair to say?
4: Well, those are the mechanisms that are in place today. What I would say is that I was in uh, Edmonton for the throne speech with Jason Kenney and he introduced a piece of legislation that I thought was a very good one. Bill one, which allows the police without a warrant to remove anyone that is blocking public infrastructure and charge each of them up to $25,000. I think that is the kind of disincentive that should be put in place federally that would allow the police to disband people peacefully Um, and provide a disincentive for them to participate in illegal protests. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we want to preserve people's rights to, you know, uh, legally protest.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think something similar is being batted around in the Manitoba legislature uh, right now. I'm not sure exactly where that is, but I, I know there was at least a conversation uh, about something similar like that. Um, you know, talking, I mean, big in, in, in the in the petro industry, the gas industry, uh, the oil industry here, here in the province. I mean, the, the, the biggest issue that we keep hearing about is, is climate change and, and reducing emissions. Uh, this has been a big part of your platform. What are your plans to reduce emissions?
4: Well, as a chemical engineer that worked in the uh, oil and gas industry doing emissions reduction, I actually do know something about it. And what I would do, is we look at the top uh, 75 emitters in Canada, they really do fall into three groups, major industrial emitters, transportation, and buildings. And so for the major industrial emitters, um, I would implement a very successful scheme that was used in the refining business, where... uh, implemented the technology to reduce their emissions, they got a tax offset. And if they did not, there was a regulatory regime and they paid the the punitive fines for not meeting the regulatory targets. That was very effective in in doing so. The U.S. actually more than doubled their uh, rate of emissions reduction. That same uh, system can be put in place to reduce uh, diesel emissions in trucks. There is emerging technology such as uh, uh, portable nuclear skids that could replace diesel in the north. And in terms of uh, transportation, obviously we want to see more rail, especially in, in the big cities where uh, transportation is a is a nightmare. I got
1: I, I got I, I to stop you, there, Marilyn. Did you did you just say that Donald Trump reduced emissions more than Barack Obama?
4: Uh, Donald Trump actually just got one gigaton of reductions. That is more of an emissions reduction than any country in the last same time period.
1: Donald Trump. Oh, that's that's interesting. How did he do that?
4: He did it by uh, actually getting people to put in technology to reduce emissions and by getting people off coal. And so those are two things that we can do in Canada. And we can leverage our solutions to those people who are the sub- carbon footprint in the world and this way we could create canadian jobs and canadian prosperity
3: hmm,
1: that's interesting uh one of the big uh, things i mean going into the last election was social conservatives uh conservatism uh that was kind of the big sort of surrounding i don't know okay it was the big thing surrounding andrew sheer uh when he was of course i mean he's still the, the leader of the party before one comes in here but um that was the big sort of question mark is, is, is social conservatism dead? Where, where do you stand on that? Because uh, it, it seems to be if, if you're holding on to sort of those, those sort of uh, social conservative beliefs, uh, the path to winning an election is, is, is pretty difficult. Uh, where do you stand on that?
4: Well, I'm going to be standing up for the rights and freedoms of every Canadian. I think it's time we stop pitting one group against one another. The reality is, uh, in Canada, if we're going to have our individual freedoms, We have to give other people their individual freedoms and and to treat one another more respectfully. So I'll be standing up for those that are pro-life and those that are pro-choice, those that want to march in a pride parade and those that don't want to march in a pride parade. Because, you know, it's not about uh, getting rid of one group or pitting one group's values against another one. Really, it's our freedoms in Canada and the government needs to get out of that.
1: Yeah. Um, why, Why have you put your name forward here? Like, why, why enter the leadership race? Why, why, why try to be Prime Minister of Canada? I mean, it's, it, seems like a cra- it seems like a crazy thing to want to do.
4: Well, obviously, it is a difficult job, but it's our country, and I believe that Justin Trudeau is ruining our country. He's destroying our economy, and when I look to see who else was running, it looked to be the same old same old. We've lost the last two elections under that same old same old. It's not going to win. So we need a strong, dynamic leader that can win the hearts of Canadians, And we need a better balance in our policy of fiscal responsibility and social compassion. Canadians love what we do as Conservatives when we grow the economy and create jobs and reduce taxes and balance the budget. But they want a credible climate change plan. They want help with our ailing health care system. And they want to have compassion on Canadians that are in difficulty. That's what I bring. I know how to expand our base so that we can win with the young people, with women in Ontario, Quebec, and Atlantic, while maintaining the things that we need to do to restore prosperity to the West.
1: Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Marilyn. Marilyn, glad you. Uh, she is running for Conservative leadership here uh, for, of course, the Conservative Party of Canada. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey,
4: thanks for having
1: me. Have a great day. No, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. So, yeah, that's, I think we're going to be doing this as it, get, it gets closer, just to so you get to know the candidates. Of course, you had Peter McCain for a half hour earlier today. He's the perceived front runner. But I, I think Marilyn is some, she seems like, I mean, of course, it, she's the MP for Sarnia Lambton. So, not all that well known, but uh, I, I enjoyed that conversation with her. Uh, do you follow Super Tuesday? I oh, I do follow American politics for sure, yeah. 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 Um I follow American politics to the best of my ability because <laughs> let's be 100% honest from a Canadian perspective it's really confusing. Well yeah the whole delegate system uh the conventions the nominations you know the um no oh, yeah you know you know what I'm talking about. Well, well it's funny I, just, I earlier today I was uh going on a rant with one of my colleagues and he was getting the Iowa caucuses confused with the New Hampshire primaries. Yes, a caucus is different from a primary. <laughs> yes, they are, they are different. And it's, and I'm still not fully sure I quite understand the difference between them. But yeah, I, I, I take a look at this, at the situation there, and, and I just think, I understand it's, you know, they're ten times our size, so obviously their voting process would be much longer. Mm-hmm. But I, I just look at that sometimes and think, ugh. Well, I got Chris Jackson, the vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs. I got him on the line right now uh, to talk about this. Uh, hey, Chris, how are you doing?
0: Hey, greetings. Great to be with you.
1: Good, good, good to have you on. Uh, maybe you can answer Tristan's question. What, Maybe some of the, uh, a question that maybe a lot of people that are listening have. What's the difference between a caucus and a primary
0: well, to answer your first question, the American primaries are complicated, mm-hmm. I think, because the people who set them up sort of want them to be complicated to make it a little bit uh, difficult. And so you have to be a little bit of an expert to, to navigate it. Um, but the difference between a caucus and a primary a primary is just essentially sort of a regular election. It's just for one party. So there's a Democratic primary, Republican primary. People on either side get to vote for whoever they want on their side that's pretty conventional pretty normal a caucus is essentially a glorified meeting where you have to actually go to a place and you stand around in groups and you essentially in those groups decide who you're supporting and there's an opportunity during the caucus for you to like change who you're supporting and then at the end of the night the person who's running that particular location essentially counts everyone up and is like all right well Biden got 42 people, and Sanders got 60 people, and Bloomberg got 10 people, and then they send that number up to the county, and the county sends that number up to the state, and it's a much more sort of involved process, a much more laborious process, which is why you don't see as many states do it, and why you see the results of caucuses sometimes be a little bit strange and hard to predict.
1: Which is kind of what happened in Iowa this year, kicking things off, eh?
0: That's right. Yeah. Uh So uh, Buttigieg actually really surprised in the caucuses, was able to sort of take advantage of he was sort of everybody's second choice to in those points where people sort of moved around the room and decided, well, you know, if I'm not with this guy and with that guy, he picked up a lot of support. And that ended up being able to really sort of surprise didn't really end up helping him because after Iowa and New Hampshire, he didn't really have a lot of support after that small town mayor. Um, Didn't go anywhere in Nevada or South Carolina. Decided to drop out on Sunday. But Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, those early states, a little bit surprising for us.
1: Yeah, uh, Super Tuesday today. Uh, more delegates on the, uh, more delegates available here. Approximately about a third of all the delegates available today. We have Alabama, Arkansas, California, uh, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia all holding uh, uh, their uh, primaries uh, today. Uh, now, uh, now, Chris, I-, I wanted to to talk to you about this. Uh, you-, you wrote a commentary for for Global News here what Super Tuesday means for the Democratic nomination and for the party. Well, I guess that's my first question for you. What does it mean?
0: So Super Tuesday, this election today is the single largest pot of delegates that's going to be given out in a single day. And really what we're looking for tonight is we, it's pretty certain that Bernie Sanders is going to get the most delegates today. He's got a large margin in California. He's got a large margin in the New England states. And the question is, does he win by just a little bit or does he win by a lot? Because if he wins by a lot, that essentially clears a path for him to eventually become the Democratic nominee. But if he just wins by a little bit, that means this contest is going to go on longer and potentially we can see some more changes down the road. The second question is, does Biden, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, who did really well in South Carolina on Saturday, does he do well, uh, particularly in the southern United States today? Or does his vote sort of split with former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg uh, and they sort of dilute each other's support a little bit? If, If Sanders doesn't win by a lot and Biden does well, this really becomes a two-person race, and in a two-person race, Joe Biden actually is in a strong position to ultimately come out the victor.
1: Well, we were looking at um, the kind of the polls, and and I think it almost it, there was the potential, even looking at it a couple days ago, that Bernie Sanders was going to, you know, even possibly sweep. I mean, I don't think that that's mm-hmm. going to be the case. But now that we've seen uh, Tom Steyer, he he's bowed out. We've seen, uh, yeah, just like you mentioned before, Buttigieg. Uh, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Minnesota Senator um, Amy Klobuchar, uh, uh, Buttigieg and Klobuchar both throwing their support behind Biden. You know, even B- B- Beto mm-hmm. O'Rourke is out there in Texas, you know, pounding the pavement for, for Team Biden. Um, those initial polls that said um, Sanders was ahead. I mean, this is a, this is, seems to be a completely different situation. Uh, would you Would you agree with that? Is can, can we take those polls that we're seeing seriously before all of this started to come to come together?
0: Well, I think I think you do, but I think the thing to remember about Democratic voters this year is that they are laser focused on finding a candidate that can beat Donald Trump. That is the number priority by a a significant margin for democrats and for most of the campaign in 2019 joe biden kind of looked like that guy but when he did poorly in iowa he did poorly in new hampshire he did poorly in nevada it's hard to make the case that you're a winner when you don't win anything right Mm -hmm. but now that he's won in south carolina We're starting to see people sort of coming back to that idea that, oh, you know what, Joe Biden is a winner after all. He is able to win something. So you're seeing some of the support flocking back to him. And uh, Bernie Sanders is a little bit stuck where he is with about 35 percent or so of the Democratic support. So there is there is definitely momentum. And I think the big question that is hard for us to answer is, has there been enough time since South Carolina for there to be enough people to move towards Joe Biden? To really change the shape of this race, that that's the big question mark. I think if South, if Super Tuesday was a week from now, we could potentially see a wholly different, uh, wholly different ball game. But with only four days between South Carolina and Super Tuesday, that's not
1: a lot of time. Where are Bloomberg's millions going to get him today?
0: <laughs> that is also a big question. So Bloomberg <laughs> has spent an estimated half billion dollars with the B. Yes. Uh, on campaign uh, staff and advertising. And you know, he, a week ago, two weeks ago, looked like he was in a good position, but uh, he had some poor debate performances that kind of rocked him. And then now it really looks like the establishment's rallying behind Biden. And I expect Bloomberg to pick up some delegates, but that's really one of those two main questions is, does Bloomberg actually do really well or does he sort of underperform? He's not been tested yet. He's not actually been in an election. Uh, he wasn't on the ballot in these first four states. So he's not actually been on a ballot since he was New York's mayor. Uh, So there's just really, there's no telling exactly how well he's going to perform today. Uh,
1: Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, Uh, she's still in this race. She says she's in it for the long run. Uh, She's playing the lawn game here, hoping uh, to take it into a contested convention and then, you know, win Mm -hmm. the hearts and minds of everyone else around here. Uh, Is is she dreaming now? But I hear that she's been polling pretty good in California. Uh, Is -hmm. she dreaming or could she, uh, you know, kind of be kept alive today and you know, could she hold on to the balance of power when when everything is sort of said and done and we're at the convention in Charlotte?
0: So, you know, it's not impossible, the scenario she's outlining, but it is pretty long odds for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, She would need for both Biden and Sanders to fall short of the majority and for there not to be enough clarity between the two of them so that essentially the superdelegates who are essentially elected officials to to sort of weigh in to sort of push that person over the line. um, There's a lot of ifs in that statement, right? There's a lot of uh, big question marks. And that also assumes that she's the one that the party would see as that sort of compromise candidate, which, you know, may be true, but may not. I mean, there's no reason it wouldn't be, for instance, Pete Buttigieg who'd be a compromise candidate or somebody completely out of left field. You know, I think if Michelle Obama, the former first lady were to like, even make the barest mention of being interested, like the party would 100% jump behind her hmm. to to support her you know, candidacy. And there's no reason why after the first ballot of the convention, it has to be one of those other candidates. It could go anywhere. So I think Elizabeth Warren, yes, it's technically possible what she's <laughs> after, but I think it's pretty low odds.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Chris Jackson, vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs. Thanks so much for, for joining the program.
0: My pleasure. No.
1: Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Uh, great conversation there uh, about uh, what's going to happen in Super Tuesday. And this stuff always affects us here in Canada. Just look at the whole USMCA or the new NATO, what uh, new uh, NAFTA, whatever they're calling it now. USMCA. I think it depends on what country you ask. Whenever we get uh, press releases from like the US, it's always USMCA. Uh, But when we get them uh, uh, here from the federal government, um, it's different. It's like uh, CUS, it's Kuzma instead. So it depends on what country you're asking. Everyone's trying to put uh, their country uh, in in the lead um, of whatever this trade agreement is called.